Well, I hope you're having a great day. Today we'll be talking about Manifest Destiny and its lasting legacy on the United States, focusing mainly from 1841 to 1848. Uh, without any further delay, we'll just go ahead and jump right into the lecture. Big leaders like Henry Clay and Daniel Webster had hoped that they would be able to control the newly elected president, William H. Harrison. But their plans hit a slight problem when he got pneumonia and died four weeks after becoming in the United States president and entering into the White House. Uh, this should come as no surprise to you guys because you remember from previous lectures that William Henry Harrison had a curse placed on him by Tecumseh's brother, the prophet. The new president, though, was John Tyler. He was a Virginian um, who was also considered by many to be a lone wolf, not really paying attention to party lines or what other people thought. He definitely did not agree with the Whig Party, um, and since the Whigs were pro-bank and pro-tariff and pro-internal improvements, but as a true Southerner of the times, he did not um, support these. Tyler was definitely more of what we would consider a Democrat of the day. I will take a moment to go into not a word from our sponsor, but rather the first two questions from this podcast lecture series for students to answer and bring with them to class. The answers anyway, not the questions themselves. One, was the American expansion across North America an inevitable development? And two, how was the idea of manifest destiny used to justify expansionism? Remember, uh, bring these to class. I read them in case you're listening on only. If you want to see the questions, by all means, go watch the video. After their victory, the Whigs unveiled their platform for America. Financial reform would come in the form of law, ending independent treasury system, and John Tyler would sign it. A new bill for the Bank of the United States was on the table, but Clay didn't try very hard to compromise with Tyler to get it passed, and therefore it was vetoed. The Whigs' extremists now called Tyler his accidency. His entire cabinet resigned except for Webster. Also, Tyler took this time to veto a proposed Whig tariff. The Whigs then redrafted the tariff, revised the tariff, taking out the dollar distribution scheme and pushing down the rates to about a moderately protective tariff of 1932 or 32%. And Tyler realized that this tariff was needed and reluctantly signed it. At this time, anti-British sentiment was once again becoming high because of the pro-British Federalist who had died out. Uh, there had been two wars with Britain and British travelers in America scoffed at the uncivilized Americans. Americans and British magazines ripped each other's countries, but fortunately this war was only of words and not about blood this time. In 1800s, America, with its expensive canals and railroads, was borrowing nation from Britain that was the one lending the money. But when the Panic of 1837 broke out, the Englishmen who lost money assailed their rash American borrowers. In, 19, I'm sorry, in 1837, a small rebellion in Canada broke out, and Americans took this opportunity to furnish arms and supplies to Canada. Also in 37, an American steamer, the Caroline, was attacked um, in the north and set afire by a British force. Tensions were high afterwards, but later they calmed down, and then in 1841, British officials in the Bahamas offered some asylum to 130 revolting slaves who had captured the ship Creole. As one can well imagine, these things did not cause Americans to hold the British near and dear to their hearts. And now we'll turn our attention to the most important state in the Union during this time period, and no, I'm not talking about Texas, but I'm talking about Maine. 
Uh, Maine had claimed territory on the northern and eastern border that was also claimed by England. And there were actually small skirmishes taking place in the area by, by you guessed it, the feuding lumberjacks. Luckily in 1842, Britain sent Lord Ashburton to negotiate with Daniel Webster after the talks. The two agreed to what is now called the Webster-Ashburton Treaty, which gave Britain their desired Halifax-Quebec route for a road while America got a bit more land north of Maine. The United States also got a readjustment of the U.S.-Canadian border and the knowingly priceless Mesabi range of iron ore up in Minnesota. It later provided the iron for the steel boom and this industry boom of steel manufacturing in the United States. Ever since it had declared independence in 1836, Texas had been building up reinforcements because it honestly had no idea whether Mexico would come and attack again and reclaim her um, as her province in revolt. So Texas made treaties with France, Holland, and Belgium. And these alliances are what became worrisome to the United States because if Texas was able to befriend Europe, Britain especially, it caused a big problem for America, such as the Monroe Doctrine, where Europe was told to stay away, would be undermined if England had a friend over here in Texas. The dominant southern cotton economy would also be undercut by the Texas cotton that was being shipped to England. The United States was at a standstill of what to do over Texas. The North decried the southern slaveocracy, a supposed southern conspiracy to always gain more slave land, um, not necessarily an unfounded fear. The um, America could not boldly annex Texas without fear of a war with Mexico. Overseas, Britain wanted an independent Texas to be able to check the American expansionism. Yet, Texas would be good boost for American cotton production and provide tons of more land. So what was the United States to do? The question would be answered when James K. Polk and his expansionist ideas won the election of 1844. His election was seen as a clear mandate for Manifest Destiny, so the following year, Texas was formally invited to become the 28th state of the Union. Mexico complained that the Americans had taken Texas from them and they maybe planned to take Texas back, which is partly true, but as it turned out, Mexico was too weak to actually reconquer their lost territory anyway, so that was a lost cause. On the other side of the United States, the Oregon Territory is a great place to be because it was stretching from North California all the way up to the 54th parallel. This territory of Oregon was once claimed by Russia um, and also Spain and England and now the United States and only the latter two still had claim on it, the United States and England. England had good reasons for its claim north of the Columbia River since it was mostly populated by British citizens and by the Hudson Bay Company. However, Americans also had strong claims south of the Columbia River since they had populated more of it. Plus, Americans occupied and had explored the interior land thanks to Lewis and Clark. The Oregon Trail, an over 2,000 mile trail across America, was a common route to Oregon in the early 1840s. The question is, who had the rightful claim to it? The United States or Great Britain? In 1844, two candidates for president were Henry Clay, the popular Whig who had been defeated twice before, and a dark horse candidate named James K. Polk who had been picked because the Democrats couldn't agree on anybody else and he was uh, had the least enemies as opposed to all the other candidates. Polk was Speaker of the House for four years. He was Governor of Tennessee for two terms. He was no stranger to politics. He was even deemed the, the nickname of Young Hickory. Um, he was actually only born 15 miles from the birthplace of Andrew Jackson as well. Polk was sponsored by former President Andrew Jackson. 
He and the Democrats were advocating for Manifest Destiny, a concept that stated the United States was destined to expand across the continent and get as much land as possible. On the issue of Texas, Clay tried to say two things at once, and this cost him since he lost the election 170 to 105 in the electoral vote, um, a very narrow margin of losing by 38,000 votes in the popular election and only 5,000 votes in New York. Some people have made the argument that James K. Polk ended up should be considered one of the most um, successful presidents in American history because he laid out a four-point mission for himself and then proceeded to achieve all four of these points in his first term in office, in his only term. He, lowered, he wanted to lower the tariff, he wanted to restore the independent treasury, putting U.S. money into non-government banks, clear up the Oregon border issue, and gain California. One of Polk's acts to lower the tariffs um, and his Secretary of Treasury, Robert Walker, did so, lowering the tariff from 32% to 25%, despite many complaints from industrialists. And despite warnings of doom and gloom, the new tariff was followed by good times. He also restored an independent treasury in 1846 and was looking for a way to acquire California and settle the Oregon dispute. Under Polk, the Oregon border issue was settled. While Democrats had promoted acquiring all of Oregon during their campaign after the annexation of Texas, Southern Democrats didn't much care anymore. England and the United States had been bargaining over Oregon and they had um, land to answer where is the border of Oregon. England answered first, 42 degrees latitude, then said the Columbia River. The United States' first answer was 54 degrees 40 latitude and then said that 49 degrees latitude. For a while there, things were tense, but England realized there was more Americans in Oregon than Brits, and so their leverage was very small. So the British proposed a treaty that would separate British and American claims by the 49th parallel, excluding Vancouver, a proposal that Polk threw into the Senate, which was accepted. The U.S. very much got the better deal. The British second choice was rejected, but the American second choice was accepted, and as with the treaty with Maine, the U.S. got a little bit more land than England did, those angry with the deal cried, why did we get all of Texas and not all of Oregon? Um, but the cold, hard answer was because Mexico was weak and England was strong. for questions three and four that you need to bring with you to class. Three, why was the Texas annexation so controversial? That's a big one, we'll spend a good deal of time on that. And four, what would have happened had Texas remained an independent nation? Another good what if scenario to ponder. So have some answers to those, bring them with you to class. Now back to the lecture. Now Polk wanted California, but this was difficult due to the strained United States and Mexico relations over Texas. After the annexation of Texas, Mexico had recalled its foreign minister, and before it had been forced to default on payments of $3 million to the United States. Also, when Texas claimed its southern boundary to be the Rio Grande, not, not the Nueces River, like Mexico said, Polk felt that he had to defend Texas, and he did so. The United States and James K. Polk sent John Slidell, pictured here, to Mexico City as an envoy instructed to buy California for $25 million. However, once he arrived, 
the Mexican government um, snubbed him, pressured by its angry citizens, refused to see him, and this was seen as a slap in the face. Another quick break for question number five. Uh, how did the rivalry between Britain affect the American decision to annex Texas, the Oregon dispute, and lesser controversies over this period? Um, sim somewhat straightforward question here. Uh, you don't have to go very deep into it, but just make sure that you have an answer for all parts of the question. A frustrated President Polk now forced a showdown. On January 13, 1846, he ordered 4,000 men under General Zachary Taylor to march from the Nueces River to the Rio Grande. This was dangerously near to Mexican troops. As events would happen on April 25th of 46, news of Mexican troops crossing the Rio Grande and killing and wounding of 16 Americans came to Washington, and Polk pushed for a declaration of war. A group of politicians, though, wanted to know exactly where the spot the fighting had been before the committing to war. Among them was a new representative named Abraham Lincoln, and because of his spot resolution, he earned the nickname of Spotty Lincoln. This was by no means a good nickname to have. Pushed by Polk, though, Congress declared war, and so began the Mexican-American War. All right, we're almost finished with these questions, but here's number six and seven. What caused the Mexican War? And you may want to think in plural terms here, not singular. And question seven, did Polk provoke the Texas boundary conflict in order to gain California or expand slavery? As a war opponent such as Abraham Lincoln charged against him. Polk hoped that once Americans had beaten the Mexicans enough, he would get California and end the war. And the recently dethroned Santa Ana told the United States that if he could return to Mexico, he could take over the government, end the war, and give California to the United States. And though this sounds too good to be true, wait, it was too good to be true, he lied. In the Southwest, U.S. operations led by Stephen Kearney, which was about 1,700 troops, um, and John C. Fremont, they were pretty much successful. Old rough and ready Zachary Taylor as general, he fought into Mexico reaching Buena Vista and repelled 20,000 Mexicans with only 5,000 men, instantly becoming a national hero. General Winfield Scott also led American troops into Mexico City, earning his name um, among the United Nations elite generals as well. Believing Mexico to have been beaten enough and being willing to compromise, uh, Polk then sent Nicholas Trist to negotiate an armistice with Mexico at the cost of $10,000. Santa Ana took this $10,000 bribe and then used it to build up his defenses rather than actually go into an armistice. Afterwards, Trist was recalled by the United States government, but he refused to leave Mexico City. He then negotiated the, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo on February 2nd, 1848, which gave America all Mexican territory from Texas to California that was north of the Rio Grande. This land was called the Mexican Cession since Mexico ceded it to the United States. The United States only had to pay $15 million to Mexico for it. $3.5 million in debt from Mexico to the United States were absolved as well. In essence, the United States had forced Mexico to sell the Mexican Cession lands. In America, people were clamoring um, and into the war, the Whigs, and those wanted all of the Mexico, but the Southern, but the leaders of the South, like John C. Calhoun, realized the political nightmare that this would call it and decided not to be greedy. So Polk speedily passed the bill to the Senate, and it was approved 38 to 14. 
Polk had originally planned to pay $25 million just for California, but he only paid $18,250,000. Some people say that America paid even that much because it felt guilty for having bullied Mexico into the war to begin with, knowing that Mexico could never have won. During the war, America only had 13,000 soldiers dead, most of these taken by disease, and the war was a great practice and proving ground for men who would later fight in the Civil War, like Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant, both gained invaluable battle experience. All right, your final question, and there's only a few more minutes of the lecture after this one, so don't turn it off. What were the benefits and the cost of the Mexican War, both immediately and in the longer run of history? Pay particular attention to the longer run of American history part of this question. Outside countries now respected America even more, since it had no more major blunders in the war and had proven its fighting prowess. However, it also paid the way to the Civil War by obtaining more land that could be disputed over slavery. David Wilmot, as pictured here of Pennsylvania, introduces Wilmot Proviso, a provision amendment, stating that slavery would never exist and should never exist in any of the Mexican session territories that would be taken from Mexico. The amendment was passed twice by the House, but it never passed the Senate, where the southern states and northern states were equal. Although it failed, the importance of the Wilmot Proviso lay in the fact that it opened old wounds, especially those of slavery. In other words, it opened a can of worms by raising the question, will we have slavery in the, secession, uh, the Mexican secession lands? Its question starts the Civil War in 1861, only 13 years later. You can pretty much see from this point forward, there's going to be a steady move towards civil war that begins with the Wilmot Proviso. Bitter Mexicans resentful of the land that was taken from them, the land that have their country's size while doubling America's, took small satisfaction that the same land caused the dispute that led to the Civil War, a fate called Santa Ana's Revenge. And that's all for our time today. Hope you guys have a good day and I'll see you in class.